week we gather together to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. And today we're going to start with singing this good news together. Let's sing, There is a Savior. There is a
Amen. His name is Jesus. He's the one that we trust. He's the one that we build our life upon. Oh, yeah. The solid rock on which I stand is Jesus. All right, help me sing this song. Christ is my firm foundation. He's the rock on which I stand with everything around me shaking. I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus. Cause he's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So I
God who will never fail us. He will never lie. He will never be untruthful to us. And that's good news, friends, today. And we can trust in a God who's faithful. But when we sing, he will not fail, what we are not saying is that you will never be disappointed in this life. What we are not saying is you will never be let down by a situation or event or maybe something you were praying for and it, it just didn't happen the way that you thought it should happen. But what we are saying when we say God will never fail is that he will be faithful to be with us, sustain us, and uphold us in every area of our life, no matter what the journey says. Scripture says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God will be with you in all places. And that's something that we can hold on to. That's good news. He is trustworthy in all of his promises. So with that frame of reference in mind, friends, can we turn our attentions toward the screens? Can we confess Psalms 145 together as we are putting our hope and our trust in God Almighty? Let us read together. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. 
He hears their cries and saves them. Beloved, let us pray here this morning. You are trustworthy in all of your promises, faithful in all that you do. God, I pray that our eyes would be open to you, that we would encounter you, not encounter the, the God that we think you are, but encounter the God of the scriptures, the God who's revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. May we know that you never fail. And even when we fail, it's okay because you're with us and you encourage us and you, you heal us and you lift us up. So, Father, may we put our eyes upon you. May we lean into you and say here this morning that we need you. Every hour, every day, every moment, we need you. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray and say amen.
this place. Oh, we praise you, Jesus. We praise the one. Come on, keep going, keep going. Keep that clap going. Give him your shout. Give him your hands. Give him your gratitude. Oh, merciful, gracious God, you have saved us from the pit. God, you brought us out of the muck and the mire. You set our feet upon a rock and we can stand firm because of not our goodness, because of your goodness, Jesus. Oh, we thank you that is not by our righteousness because our righteousness is as filthy rags, but it is because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus that we can stand and give glory to our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. Family, he is worthy. And I know you hear me say that every time because it's true every time. He is worthy of every ounce of gratitude, every bit of praise we can give him. He is worthy. You know, there's a story I've been stewing on this weekend. It's in Luke 17. I'm just going to paraphrase the story for you. You can go back and read it in your quiet time. But Jesus and his disciples are traveling to Jerusalem and they're going through this region that's kind of in between Samaria and Galilee. And they come into contact with some leopards, people who have leprosy. There's about 10 of them. And they start crying out to Jesus. They recognize what's on his life. And they start crying out to Jesus, have mercy, have pity on us. Jesus, see us, see us and have pity on us. And he does, he sees them, he sees you. He sees you and he saw them. And he said, go and show yourself to the priests. Show them how you've been made clean. And so they go and they show themselves to the priests. And guess what? Out of those 10 people, only one came back to give him glory. One leper returned and shouted. The word says that he shouted and that he threw himself to the feet of Jesus with gratitude saying, thank you, praise you. Thank you for making me whole. And Jesus looks at him and he says, your faith has made you whole. Now go, go and be forgiven. Go and be cleansed. Go and be made whole. So today, you guys, Jesus deserves every ounce of praise. May we not be one of the nine, but may we be like that one who came back and said, Lord, thank you. I didn't deserve your mercy. I didn't deserve your grace, but you gave it. You gave it anyway. Guys, I've been hearing all week long about the goodness of God. I'm not going to steal anyone's thunder because I'm hoping we get to testify about this in the weeks to come. But God, we had some, we had a a family member. We heard this through their table group of our church who has been standing and believing for healing for a very serious disease. Went to the doctor this week. They can't find it in his body. They can't find it. They cannot find it. There's stories and testimonies of people whose lives are being restored, who are finding freedom in their minds, who are finding freedom in their bodies, in their souls. And that is the greatness of God. Guys, we need testimony. And and as a staff, we're going to be talking here pretty soon about how to start doing a better job gathering testimonies because we need it. Guys, we live in a world full of, 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 of doubt and fear and worry and anxiety and all those things. And guys, I'm telling you, Fox News is not where we need to be burying ourselves in this hour. It's in the Word and it's in one another's testimonies and it's in praising and worshiping God. That's what we need right now. We don't need another news. I'm not saying we got to bury ourselves and not know what's going on. We do need to know what's going on so we know how to stand for our communities. But guys, our level of what we need to take in, like Philippians 4, 8 says that whatever is true, 
whatever is holy and pure, whatever is admirable, whatever is lovely, think, feast on those things. Because the Lord knows the world's broken. So we've got to feast ourselves on the goodness and the testimony of God. So if you've got a testimony in this place, you need to write it down. You need to share it with a neighbor. And you need to make sure it gets to us. Because we want to bring forth the testimony of the work of the Lord in this place. And it's out of that place of testimony. It's out of that place of gratitude that we give. So this morning, we're going to give. We're going to say our liturgy, liturgy together. As we say this, just a reminder, there's four ways to give. Those four ways will be on the screen. You can give online, through our app, through mail, or through the black boxes that are in the back. We just ask that if Midtown's your home, that you would mark that. But let us say these words together. May they just not be something we confess, but may it be something that we allow to shape and mold our heart towards Jesus. Let's pray this together, family. Father, you are the abundant giver of all good things. Train us to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you with all of our resources. Free us from the deceit of greed and earthly riches. Teach us to give generously with open hands and joy-filled hearts that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes on the earth. Amen. Amen. Thank you for giving this morning. For those of you guys online, we see you. Thanks for being with us. Guys, you guys know about a week on a week basis, we have over 100 people who join us online. And God's reaching and doing things to those people as well as we bless you today. Let's gather our children. Let's bless them as we send them out. And Christine, when you help me with my kiddos, thank you. Team Eswatini has arrived. They're good. They're doing great. Please keep them in your prayers as they love on our village there in the mountains of Insogini. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer over our children. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Family, thank you for being with us this morning. We're going to take just a couple of minutes and meet and greet the person around us. And then we're going to come back for the word.
Midtown, it's time for the announcements. My name is Rachel Brown. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I oversee the kids ministry here and I am excited to tell you a couple things we've got going on. If it's your first time or if you're just newish to the Midtown community, we want to say welcome and thank you for coming to join us today in worship. If you want more information about the ministries we have here or ways to connect, go ahead and scan the I'm New card in your seat back pocket in front of you or take that, fill it out and return it to the Welcome Center and we'll follow up. New Life Midtown is one of eight congregations worshiping in six locations speaking three languages. And this Wednesday night, all eight of our congregations are gathering at New Life North for a big worship night. We're going to have prayer and worship for an hour, and it's going to be amazing. If you can make it, we'd love to see you there. And finally, we're really excited to partner with New Life Downtown to bring the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course here to New Life Midtown. If you want more information about that or how to sign up, go and visit the Welcome Center. That's all for me, friends. Thanks so much. Now let's turn our attention to the Word, open up your Bibles, and get ready for the sermon. Well, good morning, New Life Midtown. Christ is risen. Didn't Vanna White do such a great job this morning? So we're trying something new, and it seemed as if most of you were paying attention, but we're trying to take things up a notch around here, so... I hope you enjoyed the video announcements. I do have one supplemental video or announcement. This, yeah, this is a video. This is, I'm a hologram. You're all. No, I do have one additional announcement, supplemental. Uh, men's retreat, you have a week and a half to register, y'all. So if you are intending to come, please register ASAP. You can do it on your phone. Preferably not during the sermon, but I'll forgive you, okay? Uh, You could go to the Welcome Center at the end of service. Somebody could help you. Or you can just go home and do it on your own. It's on the website. So, uh, guys, we would love to have you join us. It is roughly two and a half weeks away, but we have to know numbers a complete week in advance. This year we're going to a new camp, and we can't fudge and just add 20 of you like three days before, like we've done in the past, okay? So be proactive, please register. And I want to make one more comment. Her last announcement here was about emotionally healthy relationships. And many of you may not be familiar with what that is. That's a class um, that we've done in the past. I don't know if we've done it since we've been Midtown, but when we were Antioch, we had done it. And many of the other New Life congregations have done it. Our own Sarah Jackson, who is one of the pastors on staff at New Life Downtown, is the regional expert. So she's the one who trains all of the people in the state of Colorado to be emotionally healthy relationship facilitators. So she is going to be the one teaching this class. So if you are interested, it's as good as it gets. And the premise for this class is that you can only be as mature spiritually as you are relationally. And that might strike you as, huh, that doesn't sound like the gospel, but you got to go to the class and find out how it is. And I promise you it is, okay? So uh, if you're interested in that, please sign up. That'll be starting at the end of this month. And I believe it noted that there are 35 slots, and we have a tight cap on that because it's done at roundtables, all right? I've already said Christ is risen. My name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm one of the pastors here with Pastor Christy and Pastor Jade, who is our lead pastor, leading a team to Eswatini. As she mentioned, they are there along with Lauren and Sidron and Mike and Zach and so many. Man, I'm kind of jealous. Can you guys tell? I texted them and I said, man, I think this might be the best team in the history of short-term missions. I mean, 
What an amazing team we have going to Eswatini. But I'm thrilled to be bringing you the word this morning. And I will just tell you, I wrestled with this thing until like five minutes ago. Today we're going to be talking about Saul. (laughs) Oh, Saul, what a character he is. So we're in a series called Kings and Kingdoms. And most of the other New Life congregations began in the book of 1 Kings. But we wanted to, to set up the prequel to the book of Kings and not jump right into the middle of the story. So two weeks ago, Pastor Jade started with the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, which is the story of Hannah. And how Samuel was birthed out of the pain of a woman who couldn't have children. And she took that pain to God and turned it into intercession, and a prophet was born. And not just a prophet, but a transition prophet, a prophet that moved the country, the the nation state of Israel from the judges into the kings. And then last week, he talked about Samuel, and he really preached one verse, but man, did he preach it, y'all. So if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to that message. And the message last week was about how Samuel, from a young age, was brought to the temple and, or the tabernacle and dedicated there. And yet when the time came and the Lord spoke to him, he didn't recognize the voice of God because though he had been in and around the things of God, he didn't yet know God. And so last week, the sermon was all about, friends, let us not be the kind of community that are around the things of, of God so much that we are numb to the voice of God. And we never grow in learning to know God and who he is. And so now we fast forward to the end of Samuel's life, or at least the end of his reign as the leader of the people of Israel. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It will be up on the screen. You know what? I'm going to try. These glasses are new, but I'm going to try and read on the screen back here. We're going to read the entire chapter, but it's good juicy stuff. I promise you it won't be boring. So let's begin. Verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, how kind and gentle they are, you are old and your sons did not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have, verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, they displeased Samuel. Yeah, you think? So he prayed to the Lord. And as the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what a king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. And some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, 
and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it back before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone Go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and help us not to just hear the details of what happened some 3,000 years ago, but to hear how you, Spirit of the living God, are speaking to us and shaping us and forming us and warning us in moments like right now, that we are each living in. I pray that you would open up our ears and open up our hearts and our spirits to receive all that you have for us today. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have you ever been put in a situation where it seemed you were doomed to fail? I guess Mike has, because that was a quick laugh right there. But have you ever been put in a situation where you didn't see any possible positive outcome? Where you thought that you had been dealt a hand where there's nothing I can do with this. You know, I was born into a middle class family, multiple generations of Christians into a pastor's home. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I had it made. Born in America, in the 1980s to a middle-class Christian family, white, my life has been really good. Many of you in this room right now may not have the same situation. Maybe you were born into a home with abusive parents, or maybe one of your parents was absent, or maybe both of your parents were absent and you were an orphan, and you were passed around from foster care family to foster care family. I don't have a story like that. I have a story that is relatively great, especially my childhood. And as I was thinking about this, I thought there aren't really many ways that I can relate to that question, at least not in a meaningful way. But one of the really surface level areas where I can relate to this, the first thing that popped into my head, you may laugh, and I'm fine if you do. So I play basketball a couple of times a week with a number of guys that actually go here, and a couple of them are in the room. And we pick teams, and most of the guys take the picking of teams very seriously. But there's one guy who seems to take pride in always basically picking reverse. 
So instead of taking the best guys first, he takes the average guys first. And many times, I'm his first pick. (laughs) And it's fine. I'm a very average basketball player, as these guys can attest to. But it strikes me when he picks me every time I go, oh, I'm fighting an uphill battle today. Not only am I a has-been basketball player, I was never that good to begin with, and I'm this guy's first pick who admittedly takes pride in not picking the best players who are available. And that's how I can relate to this. But what we're going to talk about this morning is how the people of Israel are crying out for a king, and God warns them and warns them and warns them not to, and finally says, you know what? I'll give you a king. And how would you like to be the one who is chosen king (laughs) under those circumstances where in front of you and all of your people, as we're going to read in just a moment, Samuel says, y'all know this is not a good idea, but God has handpicked you this man to be king. How would you like to be the one standing there in that moment? Think about that. As we read today, I want you, today we're speaking about Saul, today, or next week I'll be preaching about David, the following week will be Solomon, Pastor Jade will be back, but as we're hearing these stories, I want to ask you to resist the urge to read them with the lenses that have judgments already made about these men. So when I say the name Saul, you're immediately thinking about the first evil king, And when I say the name David, you're immediately thinking about the greatest king the nation of Israel has ever had aside from Jesus the Messiah. But I want you to resist the urge to read with those and intentionally take those lenses off and hear the stories as the author has given them to us. Because these men are far more mixed and complex than most of us realize which is why I started this message telling you that little brief story about basketball and about being set up for failure, because everything we read about Saul's life needs to be read through that lens, the lens of a man who was chosen and empowered and began his kingship and began his reign in humility, but somehow over the course of his reign was broken and twisted, and he made some egregious mistakes. But read through the lens of a man who it seems was almost doomed to fail. So here's another question. Why, when things are going well, is Israel asking for a king at all? Why ask for a king when, since the time of Moses, God has raised up leaders prophets, and judges, and for the most part, it's been working just fine, except when you, the people of Israel, rebel against God. Why now? Well, scholars debate on a number of theories. One is that the Philistine threat was always at their door, and some scholars believe that the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, all surrounding this little hodgepodge nation of people who don't have a king but have a quote-unquote prophet as their leader are saying, we're just never going to get rid of these guys on our own. We need to do something different. We need a king, and we need a king who will lead us out into battle courageously and be victorious. Or maybe some other scholars have another theory 
that they had actually become wealthy over the course of ravaging these other tribes, and they had gained a serious amount of wealth. And so Israel now is at the point where they don't feel like a little hodgepodge tribe, but they feel like they are one of the big dogs, except they don't have a king like all the other big dogs do. And so what they ultimately want is to be impressive. The problem is that Israel wants to be impressive and God wants them to be holy. Israel wants to look like everyone else. And they want to bring God along as an added bonus to help them in those times when things get really tough. But really, if it's working for all these other tribes, God, why can't we just be like them? And God's response is because I have called you to be holy. And what is holiness? Holy means to be set apart for a consecrated purpose. The whole point of Israel was to show the other nations of the world that there's another way to live and that God will bless them and show himself to be who he really is to the people of Israel that they might be a conduit, a way of disseminating the goodness of God and the blessing of God to all the other nations of the earth. But Israel has lost sight of this purpose. Israel wants to be impressive and God wants them to be holy. At the, at the core, their outcry is a rejection of God. And this is a spiritual problem. This is not a political problem. Even if they think it's a political problem, it's actually a spiritual problem. They want to live the life of faith, but have it all by sight. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to get exactly what they ask for. They want to live within the kingdom of God, which requires living by faith. And they want to do it with a king they can see. Yes, Samuel, we hear your warning. Maybe the king will be evil. But at least we'll be able to see him. And at least we know what we're getting. It seems like God just makes decisions on a whim. And we never know when he's going to show up or when he's going to wait till the last minute. We'd rather have an evil we know than a good God who's unpredictable. And friends, one of the warnings that is in this text implicitly is from the moment they were delivered from, Israel, or from Egypt, God says, Samuel, this is not the first time they've been doing this. The people of God still can do, continue doing things like this even to today. We want formulas. We want a mechanical way of relating to God. God, I will do this, and Lord, then I can hold your feet to the fire, and you have to do this. And I'm here to tell you, God will not be manipulated or controlled. And they get exactly what they ask for. They want a king, and they want a king who's impressive, and they get a king, and that king is physically imposing, and he is impressive. We are always after control and mechanical ways of trying to use God and godly principles to our own benefit. And I'm here to tell you, if it even seems to work for a little while, it's actually not God. It's manipulating 
things that are happening around you. Friends, God will not be controlled. And he is not a tool to be wielded when we need to wield something. And there are ways of using the scriptures. There are ways of using his people. There are ways of using what we think is him to bring about those kinds of outcomes in our life. And the story we're about to read will show us, in the end, it doesn't work. It might seem to work for a moment, but in the end it doesn't. So, fast forward. 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're not going to read it. I'm going to give you a synopsis. Samuel is spoken to by the Lord, and he finds Saul. And this is the way Saul is introduced. This is his origin story. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Do you think that's just a flippant, cute detail in the story? Nothing is a flippant, cute detail in the biblical text. The author is showing us right from the beginning, you want an idol? We're going to give you an idol. You want someone that you can see that will be impressive to match up like all the other kings? That's what God is giving you. But God is not spiteful either. God isn't giving them what they want with a drop of poison in it just so that they'll see this isn't ever going to work. God does his best to accommodate. The theological word is accommodation. And we see this all through scripture and we see it in our own lives. That God doesn't wait for us to be perfect to meet us. God doesn't wait for us to go 99% to come the 1% and pull us through. God always meets us where we're at. And he wishes that Israel didn't do this, but they demand a king and he accommodates. And so he gives them this physically imposing king. But Samuel, throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, or Saul, throughout the rest of this first chapter in his origin story, is shown to be a reverential, humble man that he won't even approach Samuel without an appropriate gift because he knows that there is something holy about Samuel and the position he occupies. And there's this funny little detail. After he's chosen to be king, he's getting ready to be announced and anointed in public in front of his family members. And that crowning moment, quite literally, is about to happen. And Samuel's looking around and he goes, Saul? Uh, Saul? Where are you? And he sends his servants. Saul has disappeared literally during the crowning moment, the moment he's about to be knighted as the king of Israel. You know where Saul is? He's hiding behind bales of hay and supplies in a barn. We don't know exactly what's going through Saul's mind. Maybe he's read the writing on the wall and he's been paying attention to the warnings of Samuel that have continually said, this is not good for you, people of Israel. Maybe it's that. Maybe he's scared. Maybe he knows he's utterly ill-equipped for this task at hand. Or maybe he just knows everything in my life is about to change. This is the last moment I get to myself before I'm the king 
of God's people. Whatever it is that tells us, the author is warning us, this is not starting off good. This will not end well. Friends, when we rebel against what God wants for us, it will not end well. If you've been a believer for more than 10 minutes, you know this. But we must be reminded again and again and again. So then, 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're speeding through this because we're going to read a bunch of texts here at the end. Saul has his inaugural military victory, which was customary at the time. The king would be anointed, they would go out for battle, and then they would come back and they would be officially confirmed by the people in front of the people. So Saul goes off and he has this convincing military victory in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and he is confirmed as king. Fast forward to chapter 12, we're now going to read some more of the text So Samuel gives them his transition speech. Now, what we will learn about the prophet Samuel is that he's not done. He's not out of the picture. That there is some implicit agreement between God, Samuel, and Saul that the the responsibilities of leading the people are to be divided between the king and the prophet. And we don't know all of the details, though as we read more about the kings, we will learn more about what the things the prophets were supposed to do and the priests were supposed to do and the things the kings were supposed to do. But this is a transition moment for Samuel because he's been the sole leader of the people. And in the very beginning of this passage, we're not going to read it, he begins his transition speech by saying, people of Israel, am I leaving this office with anything more in my hands than what I brought into it? And they resound with a, they respond with a resounding no, Samuel. What is Samuel doing? Do you remember that warning just a couple of chapters ago that he gave them? The word of the Lord was the warning that you can have a king, but in the end, this king is going to take far more than he gives. And Samuel is part of his last speech to the people reminding them, look, I led you and it was not for my own personal gain. I'm leaving this office with nothing more than with what I brought into this space. And here, this is the last time that will be true for a long time, people of Israel. So we're going to pick up in chapter 13, or chapter 12, excuse me. We're going to read verses 13 to 15. And now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, notice how many times, by the way, in these passages, there are references to seeing, to looking. Why? Well, in part, the author is giving us clues. Remember, you wanted a king you could see. Here's your king you can see, and you can really see him because he's a foot taller than everyone else. See, The Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. (laughs) I find that so comical. The best case scenario now is good. (laughs) If you obey God, good. Maybe things will kind of go well for you. But if you do not obey the Lord... And if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now, one more detail before we skip a few verses down. 
He says, if you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God. Samuel is saying, look, to the people, this man is not your savior. He can't honor and obey God for you. He can lead you to honor and obey God, but it takes him and you as the people to be the people who God has called you to be. You can't hire a man to do it for you. Friends, you can't hire a pastor or a counselor or a spiritual director to be for you who God wants you to be. That's not how it works. God has called you to be holy, to be set apart, to be one who serves him and loves him and embodies his character in the world. And you can't outsource that to another. People can lead you. And people should be able to speak into your life, but they can't do it for you. Skip down to the end of chapter 12, verses 20 to 25. So Samuel, right before this, gives them this little warning and says, and right now, just to remind you that God is actually indeed speaking through me and has warned you, there's going to be a really bad storm. And it says, the storm comes. Do not be afraid, verse 20, Samuel replies. You have done all this evil... Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. There's some good news. As for me, far be it from me that I, Samuel, should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. What a culminating speech multiple warnings. It is possible for things to go well for you, but serve God and obey him with what? All of your heart. Three times. All of your heart. And funny enough, do you know what immediately follows? Saul obeying the Lord with half of his heart. Saul obeying the Lord with half of his heart. Guys, the author is not giving us these details arbitrarily, but these things are showing us God knows what's best for you when your appetites don't want what God has for you. And I say this kind of stuff to my five-year-old and three-year-old all the time. I know that those sugary treats taste so much better than vegetables. But you can't live off Pop-Tarts. You can't live off sugar cereal. And God is warning them over and over and over again. Not only is a king a bad idea, the kingship, the monarchy, the whole thing is a bad idea. Because you've been called to be my people. And now you're putting someone in as another unnecessary layer. And we're just asking for problems. So, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 
We were going to read this, but I'm going to skip over it for now. This story is of Saul being commanded to wait seven days on Samuel to arrive before offering, uh, making an offering before the Lord, before going into battle with the Philistines. And what ends up happening is between the last chapter and this one, something has gone wrong within the people because the people are now trembling. They're not excited, they're not courageous, they're not thinking they're on top of the world, but they're trembling. And they don't think they can beat the Philistines. And Saul's waiting like he's supposed to. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And finally the seven days are up. But there were two parts to the command. Wait seven days for Samuel to arrive. And he waits seven days and Samuel has not yet arrived. But he's losing the morale of the people. And so he takes things into his own hands and he makes the sacrifices. Saul wanted God's favor so badly that, ironically, he was willing to disobey God to get it. He wanted God's favor. And he says this. He says, I can't go into battle without asking for God's favor. So bring me the stuff and I'll do it myself. He wanted God's favor so badly he was willing to disobey God to gain it. Friends, hear the warning in that. We are not called to give to God what we think he wants. We are called to give God what he has asked for, which is our whole lives. We can't give God little bits and pieces and think that we are appeasing him. God is not an idol to be appeased. He is the Lord of the universe that we are to be in relationship with. And he doesn't want to be appeased. That's idol work. God wants complete obedience, not just because he's a tyrant. Well, he's not a tyrant. I should have taken the just out of there. Not because he's a tyrant, but because he knows it's what's best for us. Obedience is best for us. The next chapter, we're going to skip over this. But Saul calls a fast right in the middle of a battle. And his son is not there to hear the command. And his son Jonathan eats of the food. And Saul goes, oh, what have you done? Well, I guess we're going to have to kill you now since you disobeyed. And the people are like, we're not killing him. And so Paul, or Saul says, okay, whatever. And he moves along. Chapter 15 now. I was going to read this, but for the sake of time, you're going to have to read it on your own. Chapter 15. This is Saul's final blow. He defeats the Amalekites, and God had given him yet another very clear direct command. Do you know what it was? Kill every living thing and take nothing. And you know what he does? Half-hearted. He kills almost every living thing. But we're going to keep the king, and we're going to keep the best of the animals, because surely... God doesn't really know what he wants. And so we're going to offer the best of those as offerings to God. And so Samuel shows up and he goes, Saul, what have you done? And he goes, I did exactly what you told me God wanted. And he goes, well, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in the background? Guys, this is really funny, actually. Yes, Mike gets it. This is a really funny story. The irony all the way through. Every time Saul does something and he thinks, I'm doing exactly what God wants, Samuel shows up and goes, 
You didn't do exactly what God wants. Once again, this whole thing is a really bad idea. And here's the deal. At the end of chapter 15, eventually Saul confesses. But he never repents. Saul confesses and he says, you know what, Samuel, you're right. The people coerced me. And he goes into this whole blaming thing. They took the animals and they wouldn't, you know, they thought it was a good idea and I kind of let them do it. You're right about that. But he never repents. He confesses, but he has no intention of changing his ways. And there's no inquiry into the heart of God. God, how did I miss this? What am I getting wrong? What's inside of me that I am even capable of doing something like this? Saul never even goes there. The next thing he does is ask Samuel to go back with him to the place of worship to save face. Friends, there is a massive difference between recognizing you've done something wrong and repenting. And recognizing and confessing that you've done something wrong is not the same as saying, God, I don't know what's broken inside of me. I don't know how I was capable of doing something like this. But come and change me. Come and touch me. I am broken. Saul doesn't quite get there. So what might these stories be telling us. Today, we basically did a cursory survey of 20 minutes of Saul's life. From this moment, God pulls his hand back from Saul's reign, but he allows him to reign as king for at least another 12 years. And what we see is Saul's life spirals out of control. And eventually, he throws a spear at his own son, Multiple times he throws spears at David, his successor, yes, but also the one who was able to cure him and bring him some kind of reprieve from the demonic oppression. Saul's life spirals out of control. What are we to learn from these stories? Well, the first is that idolatry gives us the feeling of security and control, but always leads to destruction Saul, over and over again, is intentionally painted as this handsome man who is head above everyone else in Israel. The author is going out of his way to show us, look, this is a human idol. The people of Israel are looking to a human idol. They literally asked him to replace God. And that's exactly what an idol is. Anything that replaces the position that God alone should occupy in our lives. And idolatry, subtle as it is in 2023, we don't, most of us have little Buddha figures in our rooms at home. We're not praying to animals, doing all these kinds of weird things that we see with people in other cultures, but we do the same kinds of things. It's just more subtle and insidious. And you know what? It might feel like you have more of a measure of control and security, but it always leads to destruction. The second thing, I want to ask you this question. What do you feel within you when you hear Saul's story? What do you feel 
I will tell you that the first thing that I felt and what I felt as I read this and read this and read the stories over and over and over again moved from something like pity to compassion. Saul is painted as a very pitiable figure. He's overmatched in almost every way apart from his physical body. He's utterly unprepared to be the king. And he was the first king. There was nothing for him to model this after. But think about what we talked about in the beginning. Saul didn't ask for this. Saul didn't want this. You know what Saul was? The fruit of Israel's sin of rebellion. There is more to every one of us than the worst mistakes that we make. Don't read the story of a man like Saul and think, yeah, he gets what he has coming to him. What an idiot. How could he do that? You know how he could do that? Because the sins of other people were birthed in putting him in a position that he never should have been in in the first place. That when you and I do the things that God is telling us not to do, it harms other people. And it puts them in positions where they can't succeed. That sin is more, more than just a moral breach. It's more than just going 27 in a 25 speed limit. That sin has real consequences in the lives of the people around you. And if you can read the story of Saul and not feel any ounce of compassion, I would ask you, in what ways are you any better than Saul? Do you continually live up to every standard that God has asked of you? Do you fulfill every requirement in the Old and New Testament? Are you always gracious and loving and compassionate? Do you handle every situation with the grace of Jesus Christ? Of course not. None of us do. I'm lucky if I do once or twice a day. I think the scripture is intent on not just allowing us to read it, but reading us. And when we read these kinds of stories, the feelings that well up inside of us tell on us. They tell us where we're actually at in our relationship to being formed in the image of Jesus Christ. Because you know what I read somewhere in that passage, I believe chapter 12, Samuel warns them and says, Obey the king and the people. Serve God with your whole hearts and obey. And far be it from me to not continue to intercede for you. Did you hear that verse when we read it a few moments ago? I am going to continue to intercede for you. Does that remind you of anyone else? Is Samuel showing us a picture of anyone else? who full of compassion is watching his people make mistake after mistake. You remember that story? Luke chapter 22, Jesus is there with Peter and the disciples and he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you that your faith would not fail. You know what Jesus doesn't say? I'm praying for you so that you won't make a mistake, so that you won't slip up. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says that when you hit rock bottom, 
I know how you're going to feel. I know how you're going to feel about yourself. I know how you're going to feel about how you've let me down. And I'm praying that in that moment, that condemnation doesn't overtake you. That your faith doesn't fail, friends. We will all make mistakes. There is no way of living the Christian life perfectly. It's only happened once. And good news for you and for me is that that one time happened because it was Jesus, the strong son of God. And by doing that, he opened up and made space to draw you and I into his life, which is the perfect fulfillment of the law and all righteousness. So that you and I can make mistakes, and yes, there are real consequences. This is not a glossing over of sin. There are real consequences to our sins. Let me just read this. God will not protect us from all of the consequences of our poor choices. Most of the time, God does not. On occasion, we get spared sometimes. But most of the time, God will not protect us from the consequences of our poor choices. But you know what? He never leaves us to figure it out alone. Friends, this is the gospel. Seth, if you would come. God never leaves them alone. That already when Saul is making these mistakes... And God sees the end from the beginning, and God knows what's happening. I believe that God's heart is broken for all the parties involved. He's broken for the heart of Samuel, who is wounded because he has been really offended. He's broken for the people of Israel, who are walking into something, and though they've been warned time and time and time again, they keep saying, yep, God, that's what we want. That's what we want. Come on, Samuel, bring it on. And his heart is broken for Saul, whose heart really did want to please God, just not all the way. He goes 90% and he just can't get the extra 10%. And thank God that when we do the same, we have a merciful, compassionate Savior. Not someone who's looking down on us with a rubric, grading every mistake, I want us to read these verses as we prepare our hearts to come to the table from Romans chapter 8. Put that on the screen. I'll read this slowly. What then, Paul says, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Friends, would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the table? Saul's life is truly sad. It's heartbreaking. And it's not the last time we will read about a king with a sad story. God gives them this warning, and he means it. It's not a cute warning. It's Israel. This is going to compromise things in a massive way. And yet they still persist. As you and I so many times have done, 
we have persisted in our rebellion willingly or ignorantly in the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. And so as we come to this table today, we ask, Father, would you see the depths of our heart and help us to repent? Not just merely confess, but confess with a heart that is open to change, with a heart that is postured toward your spirit saying, God, do whatever you need to do to make me more like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask that in this moment you would come, that you would breathe upon our hearts and open them and that you would breathe upon these elements and make them more than the bread and juice that they appear to be. We ask that you would meet us in this moment as we come to the table and that you would cleanse us. Friends, come to the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. You can exit out the left side of your rows. Come forward, receive the elements, go back to your seats, and we will partake together in just a moment. Yes, where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Yes, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you.
While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Receive the body of Christ broken for you and me. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and thank God. Let us receive the blood of Jesus shed for the remission of sins. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. Now let us respond with the doxology and we'll be sent back out into the world. Praise God from whom all blessings Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Before we are sent, our communion attendants will remain in place for any of you that would like to come forward for agreement and prayer. For anything, there is nothing too big or too small. Please come forward if you need prayer for anything. Also, last reminder, we have a number of spots left open in our table groups, which began this past week. So if you've been meaning to register, there are just a small handful of groups. And guys, go sign up for that men's retreat. And now I bless you Friends, it has been good to be together in the house of the Lord, worshiping Jesus. And now we are empowered to be sent back out into the world to partner with the work of God wherever he is moving around you. Go in the peace and power of Christ. We'll see you next week.